This is the Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm Amit Ghosh, a general internist at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. The topic for today's discussion is COVID testing, what every provider needs to know. Today, we are joined by Dr. Matthew Binnaker, Professor of Lab Medicine and Pathology at Mayo Clinic Rochester and Director of Clinical Virology. Dr. Binnaker is also the Program Director of the PhD Fellowship in the Department of Lab Medicine and Pathology. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Binnaker. Happy to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Dr. Binnaker, we are about a year and a half uh, in this pandemic, and your work has been nothing short of sensational. It has allowed Mayo Clinic to scale the platform of testing. It has allowed all of us in the front lines to talk with the patients from the knowledge that we have gathered coming from your lab on how to test and what to do. Before I ask you the question on how we diagnose COVID-19, could you briefly tell the processes that you had to follow in your lab with your colleagues, with the clinical services? How did you go about receiving this information of here's a pandemic, it's a new virus, you have to create a new test, which nobody had done before, and you have to scale it to an amount which has not been scaled in the past with anything that we have done in the recent history. So I know you've been uh, keenly involved in the development of the process, but more importantly, the systems and the thought process that goes in the mind of a researcher, a scientist who's also at the front line of delivering, I would say, seminal care to the patients. Yeah, it's been really an incredible journey. And, you know, that journey for us started back in mid-February of 2020. Our executive leadership team within our laboratory medicine and pathology area was watching the development of the COVID-19 pandemic. And at that point in mid-February, it was still very early on. And there was a question of whether this was going to become a worldwide pandemic or whether it was going to be mainly geographically localized in in Asia. I think in mid-February, what we started to see was increasing case counts and increasing cases in other parts of the world. And so the likelihood of it reaching the U.S. and reaching our Mayo Clinic patients became higher. And so we made the decision, I think it was on February 17th of 2020, to develop our own test to detect SARS-CoV-2. At that time, the only test that was available was from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And our public health laboratories, including the CDC, don't have the capacity to test large numbers of samples. And so our team made the decision that this was likely going to impact our patients. Our physicians would need results in hours and not days or weeks. And so we knew we needed to develop our own test in order to provide that needed information. Usually when we develop a new test, we'll put one, maybe two research scientists on a project. And that usually takes nine months, can take up to 12 months in most cases to develop a new test from scratch. In this particular instance, We knew that to provide actionable results and provide the service that we knew would be needed, we would need to have that test up and running in less than four weeks. And so what we did is we pulled together a team of 15 people. 
And so we had research scientists who had expertise in developing molecular diagnostics. We had individuals who were experts in navigating the Food and Drug Administration submission process because the FDA required any SARS-CoV testing to have what's called emergency use authorization or EUA before that test could be performed. And we pulled together people who could build the test in our laboratory information system and our electronic medical records so that results could be issued and reported. And that all those people were working in parallel uh, over the course of three weeks. And in early March, we actually went live with testing for SARS-CoV-2 using a, a novel real-time PCR method. So we really cut down that time frame from, you know, the typical six to nine months to three weeks, which was a pretty heroic effort on behalf of the team and really indicated the, the level of focus and attention that it received. It then went from being able to offer a test to being able to offer a test at the scale that we needed. In the first days of the pandemic, we were running hundreds of tests. And within four weeks, six weeks, we were running thousands of tests and then tens of thousands of tests. And so it became a race to identify the equipment that was needed, the test reagents that were needed. And you have to remember that this is not something that we alone were dealing with, the world was dealing with. And so all labs across the world were racing for similar types of reagents and equipment. And so there was a huge issue with the global supply chain and the ability to get our hands on the equipment reagents that we needed to perform testing consistently. So it was a, a moving chess battle for labs trying to pull together all the required components to perform testing. Again, we ramped up from hundreds to thousands of tests per day. And uh, I think the team at Mayo really delivered in, in providing those results to our patients and physicians. Wow. Wow. It's like you're learning, you're building. It's almost like a freight train where the driver has left the engine and you have to go and climb and jump figure out what engine it is and stop the train. It's, it's an amazing journey. What are the tests which are available to diagnose COVID and has that changed over the last one and a half years? Yeah, so the early test that was offered and probably the type that's been used most commonly throughout the COVID-19 pandemic is what I would kind of call a molecular-based test. And the, the term or the acronym that most will be familiar with that falls into that category is PCR or polymerase chain reaction. So the PCR or molecular-based tests are actually looking for the virus's RNA in patients' clinical samples and looking for a small part of that viral RNA and making millions of copies of that part of the viral genome so that the instrument that we run the test on can actually see a positive result because every new copy that's being made during the PCR test, it generates fluorescence that can be seen or visualized by the instrument. That's been, again, the most common type of test that's been used throughout the pandemic is, again, molecular-based or PCR-based testing. There's two other categories of tests. The next one is antigen-based testing. 
And so that type of test is actually looking for viral proteins or antigens in patient samples like a nasal swab. So it's different from the molecular test because where molecular is looking for viral RNA, the antigen tests are looking for viral proteins. The antigen tests are typically faster, so they will give you results in sometimes as little as 15 to 20 minutes in comparison to the PCR-based test, which may take hours to perform. The downside of the antigen tests is that they can be less sensitive, meaning that they may be negative when a PCR test is positive, especially early on in the disease. So antigen tests are best performed in individuals with symptoms because that's when their performance, their likelihood of being positive is going to be highest. And then the, the last type of kind of testing category that I'd mention is the serology or antibody-based tests where we're actually looking for the immune response to SARS-CoV-2 infection and whether an individual has mounted what, what are called IgG, immunoglobulin uh, class G antibodies in response to being infected with SARS-CoV-2. So let's take the first two tests, the RT-PCR and the antigen test. What is the time of detection from getting infected to being detected by your each of these three tests? Yeah, it's very important and we've learned a lot about SARS-CoV-2 infection over the last 18 months. And the timing of when the test is performed is critically important in determining whether the results will be accurate or not. After someone is exposed to SARS-CoV-2, the virus follows kind of a bell-shaped curve of incubation, reaching high levels, and then declining in levels in the respiratory tract. And the time from exposure to reaching the peak amounts in the respiratory tract is believed to be about four to five days. So if I'm infected on a Monday and I'm tested on Tuesday, that test is likely going to be negative, not because the test is bad or it's, it's wrong. It's just that the virus hasn't had enough time to replicate and reach levels that the test can detect. Instead, what we want to do is if an individual is exposed on a Monday, we recommend that they're tested on a Thursday or Friday. So we give four to five days for the virus to incubate and reach levels that are high enough to give that test the best chance at being positive. The PCR tests are more sensitive, meaning they can detect lower levels of the virus or viral RNA. So they may be positive as early as three days after exposure. Whereas the antigen tests really need that full period of incubation and may need to be performed five, six days after exposure so that the right amount of viral levels are present and that antigen test can be positive. So again, when that test is performed in relation to when a person was exposed to the virus is really critical. So when we see all these NFL players and other, other you know, you enter a meeting and they say, well, I got this rapid test done. So are they doing the antigen test because they might still be exposed and they don't have any symptoms. So it might still be negative and they can be entered into this huge stadium to play or this meeting room. Is that possible? It is. Many of the rapid tests that have been performed in sports settings, you know, teams have been the antigen-based tests. There, there are some molecular tests now that we actually kind of fit into that rapid category. 
some test manufacturers have developed a molecular-based test that can be performed and reported in less than 30 minutes. And so there is kind of a mixture of people being screened by rapid molecular or rapid antigen tests. But back to your point of kind of testing, uh, whether it be sports teams or just the general population who doesn't have symptoms, there's a level of uncertainty there in the test results because in the absence of symptoms, we don't have anything to guide as to when the test should best be performed. We're just kind of throwing a dart in the dark because symptoms help to guide usually when a test should be performed. But in the absence of symptoms, just for general screening purposes, that test may be performed the day after someone was exposed to the virus. And like we talked about just recently, that test is likely going to be negative if it's performed too soon. So the risk there is if you get a negative result by a rapid antigen or a rapid molecular test, you need to take that result with a grain of salt and say, I'm only negative at that point in time. Mm -hmm. And that that result may be different the next day or two days from now. And so that's why the additional mitigation measures, you know, masking, keep making sure that we're not in close proximity to others indoors, lack of ventilation, all of these things are very important, even in the presence of a negative test. That's a very important point. As far as RT-PCR, uh, what are the kind of, we know the nasopharyngeal swabs, what are the other body fluids where we can run the RT-PCR because COVID virus can be there in many places. Is there any advantage of doing it in any body fluid other than the nasopharynx and the nasal passage? Yeah, during the very early days of the pandemic, we were performing testing on the nasopharyngeal swab. So that's the swab that's inserted all the way back into the nasopharynx, very uncomfortable for the patient. And we were also testing throat swabs. We've now learned that the virus isn't present at as high levels in the pharynx, the throat. And so many labs have discontinued really recommending throat swabs for detection of SARS-CoV-2. But nasopharyngeal is still performed frequently, and I think by many considered still to be the gold standard. But because of just increased testing and the discomfort that it places on the patient, there are some alternative options. One thing that we've pursued are what are called mid-turbinate nasal swabs, where the swab is inserted about halfway up into the nasal passage. And that has shown pretty comparable performance to the nasopharyngeal swabs, and it's not as uncomfortable for the patient. Many of the rapid tests, especially the antigen-based tests, are performed on anterior nair swabs where the swab is placed just inside the nose. And that probably has the lowest sensitivity, but can pick up the virus, especially when people have uh, symptoms. Another sample type that's generated a lot of interest is saliva. And it's not really a sample type that we've tested a lot historically for respiratory viruses, but SARS-CoV-2 can be detected uh, pretty reliably in saliva samples. And many patients prefer to produce saliva instead of getting, especially a nasopharyngeal swab. So that's really opened up doors to you know, studies and interest in using saliva-based samples for not only SARS-CoV-2, but can we start to use that in the future, potentially for other respiratory viruses like the flu? I was reading your paper, which came out in the 
Mayo Clinic uh, proceedings, diagnostic stewardship, and essential element in rapidly evolving COVID-19 pandemic. It's a, it's a wonderful paper. What struck me was that initially, along with the PCR, we were doing CT scan of the lung, and we were doing PCR testing on day one, day five, with CT scan of the lung. And, and as things progressed, and as we learned, some of these tests were dropped. We no longer do CT scans. We just rely on the PCR. The one-day PCR is dropped. How has this gravitated to the test we are doing now? Thousands of papers have been published on the different kinds of things, and all to the credit of the scientists, because everybody is trying to help the patient without knowing what test would increase the sensitivity or the positive predictive value of uh, diagnosing SARS-CoV-2. So, and you are absolutely in the field where all of these literature happened and the science emerged from a remote, I'm just reading it. So it, it's very exciting to me, but very difficult for the patient to have gone through all these uh, uncertainties at that time. I think you, you've really kind of underscored that this has been a daily learning process and has required us to adapt you know, our strategies as we've learned more about the virus, more about the testing methods. You know, early on, we were relying a lot on what our historical knowledge of other viruses like influenza and other coronaviruses were and applying those to SARS-CoV-2. And we, of course, know now that SARS-CoV-2 is different in many ways from its counterparts like influenza and, and even some of our endemic coronaviral infections. So as you mentioned early on, things like CAT scans were used uh, in addition to molecular testing. We've since kind of discontinued that, that strategy. There was a lot of early confusion about the reliability of PCR molecular-based tests and now we've learned that it really depends on not only the test, but when you perform that test, right? We talked about the timing. It matters what type of sample is being tested. So you're gonna have a higher rate of negative results in COVID-19 patients if you get a throat swab or an anterior nerve swab compared to if you get a nasopharyngeal swab or a midturbinate swab. So there are, again, a number of factors that play into the reliability of that test result. And I think we have a better appreciation for that now. One thing that we did in the early days of the pandemic, probably within six weeks of beginning testing at Mayo is we established what's called a diagnostic stewardship group. And we brought together experts from infectious diseases, occupational health, and clinical microbiology. And that team met multiple times per week and looked at the landscape of available tests and determined strategies for using those tests to help provide answers for patients. And sometimes that meant turning down new types of tests because we felt like the literature didn't support their use or we would perform our own studies to demonstrate that we should or shouldn't use a test. And that team has continued to play an important role in being kind of the stewards of all of the different types of diagnostics and then recommending algorithms and different types of testing modalities for our own patients. So I think it's really important to bring together that multidisciplinary team 
to be able to review and make recommendations. You did mention about the false negative, which means that the patient has the disease, but we do the test too early, we miss it, uh, yeah. with a nasopharyngeal or PCR on day one. What about false positive? There's a range of tests which we find is indeterminate, and are they false positive? More tests or additional tests are done, and then it takes a longer period for the results to come. What about false positive testing with RT-PCR as opposed to the rapid testing, which has more false positives? With regards to false positives, I would say that the molecular tests like PCR are extremely specific, meaning in the vast majority of cases, I would say 99.5% of the time, a positive result means that the viral RNA was detected, okay? And that's because those tests are designed to look for very specific regions of the virus's genome. And test manufacturers and labs design it in such a way that they shouldn't cross-react or pick up another virus. Like there's been a lot of misinformation on social media and sometimes in news outlets that we haven't seen influenza because the COVID tests are just picking up the flu virus. It's not the case. We design these tests, especially with flu in mind, so that the COVID tests aren't positive if someone has influenza. We take painstaking measures to make sure that that is the case. The rate of false positives by molecular PCR tests is on the order of well less than half percent. Now, when tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of tests are performed, there can still be false positive results. And so that's why it's important for physicians when they question a result to call the laboratory as soon as possible so that we can look into that. Early on in the pandemic, we were seeing results that would suggest really high amounts of the virus in patient samples. And anytime you see that and you're amplifying up millions of copies, you can create a scenario in a lab where there can be what's called contamination. Labs take uh, measures to prevent that, but it it can happen. And so that's a potential cause of, of false positive results. But overall, the molecular PCR-based tests are extremely specific, low rate of false positives. There was concern when the rapid antigen test came out about higher rates of false positivity. That's been our experience in the past. But the antigen tests seem to be pretty specific. We did a study here at Mayo looking at a rapid antigen test in our asymptomatic pre-procedural population. We enrolled about a thousand patients and we only saw one out of those thousand that was what we considered a false positive by the antigen-based test. So that was better than I think what we expected. When we're talking about numbers, can you just uh, briefly mention about the numbers, uh, current sensitivity of RT-PCR as opposed to the rapid antigen testing? Yeah, again, those specific numbers, again, depend on where a patient is at and their infectious Time frame. So let's say someone is five days post-exposure, the sensitivity of molecular PCR-based test is probably going to be somewhere in the 95 to 99% range. Very, very high. The antigen-based tests at that day five time point are probably going to be somewhere in the 80 to 90% range. The specificity of the PCR test, again, 99.5. The specificity of the antigen test probably somewhere in the 95 to 98% range. If you slide that scale back to day two, post-exposure, 
Then the PCR-based tests are going to have a sensitivity in the 50 to 70% range. The antigen tests are going to have a sensitivity of 20 to 30%. Okay, so it really, again, depends on where an individual is post-exposure. We were doing a lot of testing. A single person could be getting a test at day one and miss. And then day five, they're in isolation. And then day 10, are we still doing it? Or we just do this day five thing after exposure, if we think that's what it is. And then just the patient stays in isolation for 10 days and, and then comes off. Because it's you could be shedding the virus for a long time. And the yeah. RT-PCRs have been there. I've heard about three weeks, four weeks. What do we know about the shedding of these viruses and the test positivity beyond the initial day zero or day one? Yeah, I think patients are being probably tested less frequently today than they were at the beginning of the pandemic because we've learned that an individual who's infected with SARS-CoV-2 can continue to test positive by a molecular test for, like you said, weeks and in some cases months. We've seen immunocompromised patients test positive for six months in some situations. And so the CDC has actually changed their strategy from a test-based strategy of discontinuing isolation to a symptom or time-based strategy. So we no longer require multiple negative results before someone can be discontinued from isolation because we know that they can continue to test positive and so instead we rely more on, do they have symptoms or not? How long has it been since they first tested positive? We think that in the majority of situations, the virus is not shed and does not pose a risk for ongoing transmission to others somewhere in that day eight to 10 range after someone first develops symptoms. So, the CDC has changed more to, has it been 10 days since they were first diagnosed? If so, and they don't have symptoms, they can probably be discontinued from isolation at that point. You mentioned this virus is different. We learned a lot. It's different from influenza and the other coronavirus testing when it comes to testing. I'm not talking about symptoms, complexity. I mean, there's nothing we have seen in recent years which causes that much havoc as COVID, but from the testing standpoint, what is different? I mean, what did we learn that all of them don't follow the same track? Uh, this virus is different. I would say in some ways, it's similar. We can use similar types of respiratory samples like nasal swabs, nasopharyngeal swabs. Those are what we use for influenza. Those are what we use when we would perform a test for some of the just more seasonal coronaviruses. And we also can use molecular-based PCR tests for influenza and seasonal coronaviruses. And there have been antigen tests offered for those as well. I think where some of the differences lie is that for, of course, SARS-CoV-2, most of these tests are incorporating at least two, sometimes three different, what we call gene targets. So we're looking at multiple pieces of the genome instead of just one. And that's proved to be important because the virus uh, has changed over time. And so it, by including multiple parts in the test, if one part fails, we have backups, ways to continue to pick up the virus as it changes. And I think that will continue to be important 
until we really drive down the level of transmission because it's that high level of transmission that's resulting in mutations and new variants that are forming. Is this uh, something we have done recently or right from the get-go from like March last year that we've been testing for different uh, genomic elements or is this something which has changed the RT-PCR techniques have the thought process and the mindset has changed yeah. of checking for more than one genome. Yeah, you know, our initial version of the test that we developed only looked at one gene target. And then as we started to track changes in the genome over time, we started to see that the virus might be developing mutations. And so we acted on that and changed the testing so that it included multiple gene targets. Some companies who developed tests for SARS-CoV-2 from the get-go included multiple gene targets, others did not. But I think it's become more apparent as the pandemic has gone on, the importance of looking at multiple parts of the virus's genome to, again, include that backup in the test. It's a good point to make for our viewers to understand that some, sometimes there is in social media, there's some news that, oh, our, our test won't pick up the mutations, and that's not correct. Uh, but the way it's designed, it will. That's right. It's testing multiple genome. Coming back to the last point about the antibody testing, there's so much confusion. People are doing the RT-PCR at the same time they're doing antibody. They're checking antibody so frequently. What do we know about the antibody testing, and when do we do it? Yeah, so the antibody testing is looking for mainly either total antibodies, so that would include any class of antibodies, IgM, IgA, IgG, or IgG antibodies alone. Those types of antibodies take somewhere between 10 and 12 days after someone's exposed to the virus to reach levels that can be detected. So if we do an antibody test five days after someone's exposed, it's likely going to be negative. That doesn't mean that that person is negative for COVID-19. It just means that they're negative for antibodies at that particular time. Antibody serology testing shouldn't be used as an acute diagnostic test. It really should be used to maybe confirm that someone truly was exposed to COVID-19 it can also be used in some settings to determine whether someone developed an immune response, an antibody response, following either natural exposure or vaccination. Although we're really not recommending that people who have been vaccinated get antibody tests because we don't have yet a clear understanding of the levels of antibodies that are needed for immunity. I think it's safe to say that if you got vaccinated and you're tested and you have really high levels of antibodies, that's probably a good sign. But what we don't know yet is if you have low levels of antibody, or even if your antibody test is negative, that you don't have immunity because there's the immune system is multifaceted, there's T cell responses. And so what we don't want to do is give the false impression that the antibody test can be used as a true measure of whether someone has immunity or not. And unlike what we hear before, the IgM and the IgG, uh, nobody's checking the IgM anymore. It's developing almost at the same time, the response. It's unlike other viruses where you have the early IgM response and then several weeks later, the IgG starts peaking and the IgM starts going down. Here, both of them 
uh, grow pretty rapidly within a day or two. Is that correct? Yeah, it is. For some infections, the IgM antibodies are more of an indicator of early infection. Maybe they'll be detected in between five and seven days after exposure, whereas like you mentioned, the IgG antibodies can take several weeks. But with SARS-CoV-2, it really looks like the IgM and the IgG antibodies rise to detectable levels within a day or two of each other. And there's more concerns with false positivity with the IgM tests. So we're really not recommending the IgM only test be used. Um, it's again, the total antibody test, which is looking at the whole cocktail, or just the IgG specific tests. Do you think we are better prepared as part of the supply chain of the chemicals that you need and on the tools you need uh, if this were to happen again? Did we learn some lessons, big lessons on how to organize ourselves so that we can rapidly scale up? Hopefully we'll take the lessons of the COVID-19 pandemic and prepare ourselves so that when this happens again, we can respond more efficiently. I say when this happens again, because unfortunately, another viral pandemic will likely occur sometime in the next decade. It's just reality, given the, the situation with global travel and kind of the incidence of new types of viruses emerging. I know that there is a much more heightened level of interest and engagement at all levels from government to healthcare organizations to diagnostic test manufacturers in putting together kind of a sustainable, adaptable uh, strategy for responding effectively to new uh, pandemics. I have talked with CDC and FDA on a number of occasions uh, and served on several different meeting advisory boards about how do we make sure that this uh, is addressed more efficiently in the future. And I really think it's going to take participants and collaboration at all levels for us to be able to stand up testing quickly to be able to ensure that the supply chain isn't detrimentally impacted like it was in the early days of the pandemic. So I'm hopeful that we are taking the steps to ensure that we can respond in a more timely fashion when this happens in the future. Thank you, Dr. Binnaker. I personally thank you for your tremendous work, which has helped thousands of clinicians here, especially in the front line. Is there any last words you would like to tell our readers on I would just say that we're not out of this yet. So it's really going to continue to take a, a community effort for us to effectively pull out of the pandemic. I don't think that SARS-CoV-2 is going to go away. I think it's going to become an endemic respiratory virus, much like influenza. But we've also learned lessons during the COVID-19 pandemic. For example, when a community takes collective actions like when you're sick, staying home, when you're going out into public, into areas where there's lots of people wearing a mask, we can have a significant impact on decreased transmission of diseases that can ultimately put people in the hospital. And so what I hope to see is that in the future, even when COVID-19 ends, that when we start to see viruses like influenza or RSV or SARS-CoV-2 increasing in our communities, will take collective actions and not just accept that it's normal part of life for people to get sick and end up in the hospital, but we can take actions like staying home. We can take actions like getting vaccinated. 
putting a mask on again when those viruses are at high levels in our communities because our individual actions impact those in our communities. So I think that's my uh, my message to finish up on. We will end up on that wonderful note, Dr. Vinekar. Thank you very much for your time. Ladies and gentlemen, if you have enjoyed the Mayo Clinic podcast, please subscribe, stay healthy. Uh, thank you and see you back next week.